bum bum bottom 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 bum
it is very close to being my favorite single issue of 2020. It got us super excited. Yeah. And I can't, I cannot wait for number two to come out. And I'm hoping when it's all said and done, collected, that could be in our best of 2021 uh, episode. Ooh, look at Brad looking towards the future. That's what comics are all about. We have something to look forward to every single month. Who knew? The media that is created by a bunch of weirdos sitting alone in their respective homes <laughs> is the media that thrived in 2020. Yep, yep, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, so shall we talk about our categories and how we go about picking these categories? Completely self-serving and arbitrary is uh, how we pick these categories. I mean, yes, yes. Uh, there are several categories that are returning from our special report last year. But mostly what we do is we go through our stacks of what we read this year and go like, ah, oh, I really want to talk about this one. Yeah. And so if we love a comic, we make a category for it. So don't think of this episode as a definitive ranking of the best comics that came out in 2020. Think of this episode as Brad and Lisa's favorite comic books. The, Brad is saying this mostly for me because like as part of our research, we're scrolling through like other people's best of lists and I start having like anxiety <laughs> and heart palpitations because I'm like, I have not read all of the things. And I get super overwhelmed. I, I was not actually saying that for you. I, like, I don't believe in the best of list. Of course, yeah. we call this episode the best comics of 2020 because- For click-a-roos. Yeah, you, that's, what, that's what gets the clicks, correct. Um, but, you know, art is subjective. It is not objective. And if I say that this is the best single issue of 2020, I am saying it. I, Brad Gullickson. Yeah, you're Brad Gullickson the, thinks this. It's the best of uh, your heart. Yeah, and it makes things even more complicated because we're putting this list together. And so there are comics that Brad would make number one, but Lisa would not. And so we have to come to an understanding. Collectively, we think this is the best graphic novel of the year. Collectively, we think this is the best single issue of the year. And so that adds like an extra little flavor to these choices as well. And I think that's what makes this episode exciting. Yeah, it's it's the, the marriage yeah. of our tastes. So let's talk about the categories we've got in 2020. Uh, we're going to kick things off and I'll have a timestamp in the show notes so you can jump around if you so choose. Like Jump around. We are jump going around. to spoil jump, these jump titles. So if you don't want to know what goes on in these issues, then you can skip to the timestamp of the next category. Very clever. Uh, but here they are. We've got best comic book movie. Yes, there were comic book movies out this year. Maybe not as many as you would like. And we're not including Wonder Woman 1984 because we have not seen it yet. It comes out Christmas Day. Uh, and we don't have a screener for it. Sad. Sad. Warner Brothers. Sad for Warner Brothers. Yeah. Recognize our links. power. Send us a link. Uh, after best comic book movie, we're going to be talking about best bootleg slash best fan comic. I'm excited to talk about this one. So am I. Uh, best young adult. Best one shot. Best Ongoing Series, Best Single Issue, and then we're going to close out the episode with Best Collected Comic and Best Original Graphic Novel. I cannot wait to get into it. I feel like we need a better name for our like little end-of-the-year comic book awards yeah. than... Best of. I was thinking the same thing, you know, in our movie podcast that we do with Darren and Brian in the Mouth of Dorkness. Our end of the year episodes are called The Dorkies. 
And I feel like there is some cute award we could give to the comic book couple couples counseling selections. I just don't know what that is. Uh, the booze. The uh, booze. Th- that's. Uh, it sounds like we're like booing. Like no, that's yeah. not good. I that mean, could I be get confusing. it, but you mean like, uh, oh hey boo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do like that, but also I think it could be confusing. Maybe what we should do is. Uh, ask our listeners oh. to help us come up with a good award for our end of the year episode. If you can come up with a clever little name. The Coupleys? The Coupleys? No, I don't like uh, that either. You know, how about like the Thrupples, right? Because like the comic is the third party in our relationship. I don't know. I don't know about that one. <laughs> <laughs> there are Logan. What's up? Ooh. Our Logies. No, 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 no that's, no, that's disgusting. They're not going to be called the Logies. <laughs> but listeners, uh, help us. Help us out. If you've got like a really great name that you could call these awards uh, and attach it to our brand in some fashion, let us know. You can tweet at us uh, at CBCC Podcast. You can email us, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, and we'll shout you out. Maybe we can even come up with like a cool reward. I do have a signed Frank Miller Sin City comic that I've been trying to give to somebody. Ooh, that would yeah. Be, if you come up with a great name for our podcast award show, the award itself, I'll throw you Sin City, A Dame to Kill For, single issue. I think it's issue two. I'll double check on that. Uh, signed by Frank Miller. That is, uh, I think, incentive enough for them so. to come up with something really good. Yeah, 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 please. Do our job. Alrighty, let's get this party started with our first category, Best Comic Book Movie, and no, it's not Birds of Prey. Right off the bat, subverting expectations. Yeah. I mean, I really liked Birds of Prey. Me Play. too, super fun. Yeah, I think you actually even loved Birds of Prey. I think you liked it a little more than I did. No, actually, I think that you tend to downplay how much you really enjoyed it, because I- it's a fun movie. Yes, Absolutely. I love the cast that this film brings together. Of course, Margot Robbie is an amazing Harley Quinn. I'm not the first person to say that. I really loved meeting Journey Smollett, yeah. who would go on to be on Lovecraft so Country good. and be amazing. Absolutely. And I love seeing Rosie Perez. Yeah. I feel like director Kathy Yan just killed it, and this movie stands apart from the other films of the DCU that can feel perhaps a little bit wooden or like Suicide Squad, which feels like a bit aggressively masculine to me. I get some real like woman power vibes from this movie that I- Birds of Prey is joyful. Like it's a joyful experience. And And I love, I love the idea of divorcing Harley Quinn from the Joker. Yeah, which we talked a lot about in our Harley and Poison Ivy series from earlier this year. Like, I'm glad that we have found a way to uh, surgically remove uh, the clown prince from her. The Joker is such like a ball and chain. He's a weight (laughs) on Harley Quinn's ankle. He is a weight on Batman's ankle. But I digress. 
All of that is to say, Birds of Prey was in the running for yeah, me. Yeah, good movie, good movie. But tell the people what our actual best comic book movie of 2020 is. This one really surprised me. Um, it's a documentary. The title is Feels Good Man. It's directed by Arthur Jones. It came out on August 28th, is currently available to own and rent digitally. Although when it comes out on Blu-ray, I'm probably going to snag that up too, because I also really enjoy the animation that is interspersed throughout this narrative. And that animation comes from Arthur Jones, uh, Jenna Carevelo. Caravello? Caravello, like I would say. How would you say it? Caravello. Caravello and Kylan Woodrow. And this is the story of Matt Fury, who you may or may not know, but you definitely know his creation of Pepe the Frog. This weird looking stoner frog character that was co-opted by 4chan and morphed into a hate symbol thanks to the alt-right. But originally, that frog, Pepe, was just a character in Matt Fury's comic, Boys Club. And that comic book is so um, inconsequential. It's just this cute little book about four stoner friends having a good time. And the image of Pepe that became like the internet meme comes from this moment where the Pepe character uh, drops trow. And all the way to the floor. All the way to the floor, and he's peeing. He's caught by one of his roommates, and he's like, what are you doing? And he's like, well, it just feels good, man. To stand and pee with your pants around your ankles is the context. Yeah, and then... Which I imagine must feel great if you can stand to pee. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I'd lock my door, uh, <laughs> my bathroom door. But what happened was Matt Fury uploaded this comic in the early days of MySpace, and then once he did that, the internet went wild with his image and then it just snowballed into the nightmare that is Pepe the Frog, the hate symbol today. At the beginning of the movie, Matt Fury seems like this tragic, like innocent figure where at first the image of Feels Good Man was not like being used to propagate white supremacy. It was like used as like, oh, isn't this like a relatable expression? Like it was originally used by weightlifters who like list a whole bunch of weights and then they're like, oh, it feels good to have lifted weights, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know good, what that's man. like. Um, <laughs> but he, like friends told him, hey, you should start suing these people and taking control back of your character, but he was kind of a hippie. And he's like, no, my art belongs to the people now. He was a little flattered. And amused. But then, of course. 4chan. Yeah, it got like bastardized into this ugly thing. And now he, he at one, I don't want to give away the whole movie. I do want to say, uh, I found this movie really anxiety inducing. Um, we watched it like first thing in the morning yeah. and I was jangled for the rest of my day because you are confronting head on some of the ugliest armpits of humanity. Yeah, for sure. You do hear interviews with incels. You do hear interviews with white supremacists and it is horrible and ugly. Though I do say stick to the end, there is kind of a vague light 
pinprick of light at the end of the tunnel? I think there's more than a pinprick. I think there's a lot of hope. And Matt Fury becomes this champion. You know, mm. as you said, he starts off as this innocent, like, oh gosh, what have I gotten myself into? What can I do about this? But then he does take charge. And, you know, maybe that's spoiling it a little bit, but it's this has also been on the news, you know. So I do feel like when you get to the end of this film, I felt not depressed. I felt hopeful. Activated. Acti yes, I felt activated and proud of Matt Fury. Mm. And I do think that it is very helpful and important to go into these dark armpits, as you call them, Lisa, to see what's going on. And I think that Feels Good Man explores a lot of the ideas of how somebody like President Trump can come to power. And, you know, Trump is a big figure in the Feels Good Man narrative because Pepe the Frog becomes a symbol for Trump. Like Trump co-ops Pepe the Frog. It's Alex so Jones co-ops Pepe the Frog. It's insane. Yes, it's gross, but it is crazy how this one little panel from Boys Club can morph all the way into the campaign for the president of the United States. I mean, it's nuts. It is nuts. Uh, to me, I just feel like it, it has made me very wary, and probably rightly so, about engaging with meme culture, because you just have no idea what you are tangling uh, with. Yeah, and it, it's also a good reminder that when you do share artwork online, as we do all the time through our Twitter. Make sure you know where it's coming from. Credit the artist. Credit the artist, yeah. And, and to, you know, to make sure that that line of um, accountability is present. It's a hard watch, but I think for comic fans in particular, it is like, like in high school, you had like required reading. Yeah. Like this is like required watching and it's a valuable reminder that like no art is frivolous mm. even the face of a urinating frog has power absolutely uh and it also served as a reminder that i need to support matt fury a little mm. bit uh, i went ahead and ordered a boys club from him uh, i've read it it's not my thing um, it's again, it's just crazy fascinating where Boys Club went to. Uh, but then I also picked up his children's book, his wordless children's book, The Night Riders, which is incredibly beautiful. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah, highly recommend that. Also kid's book. stars a frog. Uh, but not Pepe. Yeah. But, yeah, he's his own little frog person. Yeah, and that's actually another little interesting element about Feels Good Man is how Matt Fury is obsessed with the frog archetype, uh, you know, and he has to keep drawing some version of this frog over and over again. It reminds me of like Stan Sakai when he came up with yeah. Usagi the Rabbit Ronin. He's like, oh my goodness, this is what I'm going to draw for the rest of my life. Yeah, so um, yeah, highly, highly, highly recommend Feels Good Man. That's our best comic book movie of 2020. Now for something completely different. Yeah, totally different. <laughs> I, I'm glad, this will be like a breath of fresh air yeah. because this is our best bootleg slash fan comic and it is Living Heroes written by Stephanie Williams, art by O'Neill Jones and colored by Christina Poag. It was funded via Kickstarter and it is a Marvel character take 
on Living Single. Yeah. So you didn't watch Living Single I back did in the not. 90s? No, I did not. We are living single. I watched it. Whenever it would roll around, you know how we used to like watch TV back in the day. It wasn't like appointment watching for me, but if it was like, hey, Living Single is on, I wouldn't change the channel. Yeah, yeah. You never change the channel because your next show's coming up. You got to watch whatever's before that one. So much Full House got consumed that way. I would not mind revisiting Living Single, especially after reading this comic, because it had Queen Latifah, it had Kim Coles, Erica Alexander, like such a wonderful cast. Um, But what this comic does is it casts different Marvel characters of color, including Jen Waters. She's like a white woman of color is what they call it in the comic. Um, And they cast them as the different characters in Living Single. So like... Monica Rambeau plays Khadijah, which is Queen Latifah's character. Misty Knight is Sinclair. Jennifer Waters is Maxine, which is so fun. And so we get to see all of these Marvel characters in kind of sitcom context, and everything happens in the apartment, just like Living Single. Yeah, and so like while I don't get every single reference to Living Singles, what I do appreciate is getting to hang out with my favorite Marvel characters in a very um, relatable, sitcom casual setting. You know, when we talk about movies like The Avengers, right? Our, some of our favorite scenes are the moments where they're just chillaxing. Eating and shawarma. Eating shawarma or talking about how they could all lift Mjolnir if they really wanted to, right? Like that scene in Age of Ultron where they're all just trying to like give a tug on Mjolnir, that's like a highlight of the MCU. I want more of that. And Living Heroes is all that. And it's truly delightful. It's certainly to character with the Marvel characters. And I assume they've done a good job translating, you know, Monica Rambeau into the Living Singles character. Like, I'm sure the Living Singles section feels accurate. It's been a lot of years for me. I mean, I was literally a child when I was watching Living Single, but I think so. I I found it to be evocative and uh, retro, I guess. Um, But I also find it to be utterly joyful. It is so, the art is so cute, so colorful. And the script is funny as hell, Mm -hmm. right? You know, there's that one short, um, Vampires Again, where Yukio sees Blade at Trader Joe's, and then the whole group, the whole household is like, oh my God, Blade's here? What? Why didn't you tell us? Storm, did you tell Yukio what you have to do when you see Blade? You have to let us all know? Because when Blade's around, that means that's the only time other characters of color are involved in a Marvel event. Yeah. And like that, I mean, it's a great jab at Marvel Comics and how they just do not know how to use their black characters in any proper way unless Blade is involved, right? Yeah. But then it's also just like this really cute bit of bickering interplay, you know, that you see in sitcoms all the time that you have with your own friends where you can rag on each other when they do something foolish. Like in the episode White Woman of Color when She-Hulk is trying (laughs) to relate 
to Monica and Aurora about hair issues. And Storm goes like, as my favorite ex-sister-in-law would say, just like a damn colonizer. And Monica revokes her rights to say that she has black friends for 48 hours. Yeah, and I gotta say, the way that T'Challa hangs over this series is so brilliant. Delightful. And and when we finally get to meet T'Challa at the end of the comic, oh, like... That was a chef's kiss moment. Living Heroes is truly a brilliant bit of bootleg. It's exactly what you want from this kind of comic. Clearly, Stephanie Williams and O'Neill Jones have a fluency with the Marvel material so that they can both be reverent to it and make jokes about it and give it a little ribbing. Yeah, and to highlight that these characters are interesting, right, and deserve more space within the Marvel Universe. Yes. We were lucky enough to get our hands on the physical copy, which is like a fun digest size. It feels good in your hands. It's all uh, shiny like a magazine. But unfortunately for you guys, apparently, at least for now, physical copies are sold out. But you can still get a PDF copy from Stephanie Williams' Kofi shop. So if you want to find it, and I know you do, it's ko hyphen fi.com slash Steph Williams, S-T-E-P-H-W-I-L-L-I-A-M-S slash shop. I would normally put a link in the notes, but if I were to do that, it would spoil the content of this episode. So no link. Listen to Lisa. Hit the 15 second rewind if you missed it the first time. Maybe we should create a link tree so we can have, well, like, so we don't spoil it in our notes, but still, if you want a link to this shop, you we, you can access yeah, it through our notes or I something. I can do that. That's a good idea. That's a good I'm idea. I'm just making work for you, my love. Yeah, thank you. Any who's a woozles, there may or may not be a link. She suggests $7 or up to her coffee shop. Ah, I mean, well, 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 well worth it. I love this comic. So moving on to our next category. Best Young Adult Graphic Novel. So many options to choose from. And I feel like this is the first award where some of our listeners might push back against us. But that's the nature of lists. Again, it's subjective. Don't get defensive, Brad. Where's a Map (laughs) to the Sun, you're asking? Um, Look, Map to the Sun is great. I found it to be really beautiful. Yeah, and as an artifact, it doesn't really look like any other young adult comic that came out this year. The way it's constructed is incredibly unique. Printed on color paper. But the comic that really hit a nerve and connected with us both on a visceral, emotional level and in a surprising way was Twins. Written by Varian Johnson, illustrated by Shannon Wright, published by Scholastic in October of this year. I'm kind of surprised it connected to you so well because it yeah. is a it's a book about siblinghood, which yeah. I have three siblings. I have and none. a sister. And so to me, I was just like, it really I mean, I got all choked up at the end, but you have no siblings. No, I'm alone. <laughs> but Lisa, as you know, books Art are empathy machines. They allow you to experience life in ways that you have not. That's their great gift. And so here I am being placed into the mind of a twin, 
sibling struggling with her place in the world as it transitions from elementary school into middle school, a period that I thought I would never want to relive ever again. But because of Johnson and Wright, I have some more empathy for my middle school self and also my nieces and nephews and nibblings. And this was the first comic I read this year where I was like, I can't wait to gift this to Fred or Mars, right? Like, this is something that I want to share with my young relatives. Yeah. But even if you don't have young people in your life, I think we can all identify with the idea of trying to differentiate yourself mm. either from your siblings or your family or your past self, perhaps. And that's what Maureen is going through in Twins. The book opens with the beginning of the school year when Maureen finds out that she doesn't have most of her classes with her sister, Francine, and she feels like she doesn't know how to function independently. And Fran doesn't seem particularly receptive to correcting the schedule so that they can be in classes together. And Fran is too busy anyway, getting ready to run for sixth grade class president. Dun, dun, dun. Maureen gets the suggestion from her cadet leader. I guess she does like that in school ROTC military kind of thing. thing. I, don't, yeah. I don't understand what that is. No, thank you. But her sergeant or whatever suggests that she run for office, perhaps treasurer or a secretary to help boost her confidence. And in a shock of rebelliousness <laughs> and kind of um, bitterness at her sister trying to distance them, Maureen decides to run against her sister for class president. And yeah, Francine, not too happy about that. I think one of the things that I really appreciated about twins is how the scope isn't zeroed in on just the twins. There is a large cast of characters and how this one decision that Maureen makes in this moment of emotion ripples throughout her friends and family and getting to see how they react to this is also equally as interesting as what's going on between the twins themselves. Yeah, because Maureen has to learn how to relate to her sister, but also her best friend and her parents and her older brother. And it just becomes this exercise for her of looking at a situation from all sides. And what I loved about the book is these tiny little revelations that are scattered throughout it and how when they drop, they make you reevaluate everything that came before. And those little surprises, those twists in the story are kind of obvious, but you don't see them coming. The way that it's staged, they drop like, whoa, oh, duh, of course, great, I love that. I think this is an interesting choice for a young adult book because it does center around children. I mean, it's much younger, right? Like, so Bloom is a young adult book. Uh, Map to the Sun is a young adult book. But age-wise, you know, that high school versus the middle school, I mean, this feels like a kid story. Yeah. But at the same time, Lisa, like it is, you know, I related to it. It doesn't feel like it's speaking down to the child at all. And as an adult, it's still thoroughly entertaining. When I read this, it reminds uh, it reminds me that I am a Russian nesting doll of 
my mm. child self and and then my middle school self and then my teenage self then my college self you know yeah and i just think that this type of story is so rare you know it's like those pixar movies you know we recently got to watch soul uh, the new pixar film and that is a film that is speaking to the adults in the crowd and is able to deliver the entertainment to the children i wonder i wonder if soul is going to be able to relate to cuz i I wonder if the Russian nesting doll works backwards, like the child is going to relate to the So adult. my Film School Rejects editor, Christopher Campbell, uh, who edited my article on the best animated films of 2020, he has children, and they all watched Soul together as a family. And his first edit, or not edit, but his first response to my article was, hey, just FYI, kids love Soul. Yay! My kids oh, loved Soul. That heartens me. But where Soul is speaking to the adults and entertaining the children... Twins is speaking to the kids and also able to entertain the adults. It's kind of like a reverse of soul. Which is generally how it goes. Like there's lots of adults who love to read young adult and kids books and get a lot of entertainment out of it. But I would say that in those cases, like Harry Potter, the Hunger Games, uh, you know, my adult self is sort of surfing on the science fiction and fantasy elements. It's rare for me to read a kid's book that is not peppered with um, fantasy that I equally enjoy. But are you not surfing on the comic book? Like, you wouldn't read this book if it was just, like, a novel. (laughs) Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, okay, I'll give you that. I'm actually really proud of you for picking up this comic and empathizing with it so hard because you're several degrees away from the girls of this book. Like, you are not a middle schooler. No. You are not a sibling. You are not a girl. You are not a person of color. So, like, you're so many degrees removed from this book where I think that I do have my ins. Like, I am a sibling. I am a girl. So I'm less degrees away from seeing middle school through the eyes of two black girls. Yeah, but it is a damn good comic book and it is going to entertain as a damn good comic book. And enlighten and teach and all of those wonderful things we get from really great literature. Yeah, which is why Twins is the best graphic novel for young adults, according to Brad and Lisa. Yeah, read this book, get some good feels. And it's relatively cheap. What is it, $9.99 on the back there, Lisa? A deal and a steal. $12.99. Well worth it. Absolutely. That $12.99 will feel like less than $9.99. It's actually $16.99 Canadian, so I don't know how to do that math, (laughs) that conversion math. Um, Let's go on to our next category, which is best one shot, which I feel like I have to say sounds dirty. Uh, um, Get your head out of the gutter, Lisa. Best one shot, one of my favorite categories. There was really only two contenders in my mind, and I think Lisa would agree. Yeah. Like our runner up is certainly Octobriana by Jim Rugg. And uh, we re looked at that yesterday when I discovered I have like a like one of those like mystery pens that has like black light ink. Oh, so yeah, I was like, yeah. oh, we can actually look at this the way it's intended 
with a black light. So we like took it into the bathroom and shut the door because it doesn't have any windows. And we re-looked at this book and we're like, oh no, are we going to have to switch? I mean, it is a totally different experience to look at it under a UV light. It is brilliant looking. And I suddenly had the understanding of why Jim Rugg wanted to publish the world's first black light comic. It does not look like anything else out there. And yet still somehow manages to feel kind of retro. Yeah, which is why I think my preferred reading experience is still the retro coloring edition that he put out because it sets it in that time and place where Octobriana was this supposed Russian propaganda comic book. I was saying like looking at it under the black light felt retro to the idea yeah. because it's such like an old fashioned it's like a, such a 60s 70s thing yeah, yeah. to have blacklight posters i was kind of surprised that this is literally the first blacklight comic i think jim rugg was too which is why he went and did it because he's like wait hold on this hasn't happened we're gonna do it because he made all these really cool retro blacklight posters we have one hanging yeah, up do. by our blu-rays the viking queen and they look brilliant. And so once he heard that there were no Blacklight Full comics, on, yeah. he's like, well, I should be the first. And he is. And that's a huge achievement. So congratulations to Jim Rugg. What had us lean towards another comic to fulfill this category of best one shot was for me the story. I felt like I connected to the story of our winner, which we haven't announced yet, weirdly. Drum roll. <laughs> Which is Hedra. Yeah! Uh, Soul creator Jesse Lonergan, originally published as a 48-page fold-out newspaper comic. I so want to get my hands on this. Yeah! Though I really appreciate the format we read it in, which was the image comics republication as like a magazine sized I, one yeah, shot. It's which a, I mean, it's incredible. I love that ratio for comics. And I feel like in 2020, we've been getting more and more magazine format treasury edition comics. We're going to be talking about one coming up towards the end of this episode. I want more and more in 2021. This is my preferred format of reading. You would think that, um, the, you would benefit the most from hyper-detailed comics having it in the la larger size because you can really dive into it. But in Hedra, I like the bigger size because of the amount of space that it creates yeah. because Hedra takes place in outer space and there is like one character that it kind of centers around where you get these pages where you really do feel like the loneliness of outer space because of the amount of surface area yeah for sure that this comic provides and it allows you to do a comic where there are pages and pages of 35 paneled grids that allow Lonergan to experiment with sequential storytelling this is a wordless comic which uh Listeners of the comic book <laughs> couples counseling, you ha you know this has to be a super good wordless comic because I yeah have a hard time yeah. tolerating wordless comics because yeah. I'm such like a words forward comics fan. And I read this first, and when I handed this book to Lisa, I was like, "Now, Lisa, this I think this is a great comic, but it is wordless." And when I said the word wordless, Lisa let out the longest groan. It was like he was handing me a brick. No, yeah, <laughs> but I thankfully, I, you know, I was a little worried, but you really dug this comic. I did. It's about 
an astronaut who is selected via lottery to shoot off into space to find planets where she can harvest plants to repopulate the soil of Earth because there's clearly been some kind of um, nuclear winter or something. I know that seems kind of basic, but it is in the way that the story is told that I'm really drawn into what's happening. So the opening just shows her bouncing from planet to planet until she arrives at one particular planet that kind of looks like a planet that you would see out of Star Trek, where it's clearly shot in the deserts of California. (laughs) There's a very, like, Vasquez rocks kind of vibe. But then she finds this large ocean, and she goes into the ocean, and then we meet a whole nother character. And the story just kind of unfolds like that. And and you get to provide the text, kind of. Or not even like a text, but like a a feeling. Yeah. I I mean, for me, I agree. I think that the story is pretty basic, but the reason you connect to it so strongly is in its storytelling, specifically in its sequential storytelling. The way that he creates kind of a map that you follow. It doesn't follow the normal, like, left-to-right uh, reading order. Like often it will break up and then it'll become like this little monopoly board where you're traveling across the page and he is bending the panels so that you can follow them in a new and unique order. But it doesn't feel like each spread is like a puzzle to solve. No, no, no. Which, it's very like, to easy me, to read. Yeah, like which to me is very frustrating as a person who is like not particularly visual. Like even though it's experimenting, it still feels very intuitive to yeah, follow. Yeah, absolutely. It does not have its head up its butt like you might imagine. This is not a pretentious comic book in any way. Yeah, it's like it has its head up its brain. <laughs> yeah, I like that. We should use that phrase more often. I also really like Jesse Lonergan's art style. I feel like there are other artists that like are in this art family with him. I definitely get like a Jeff Lemire vibe from this. Yeah, yeah, a little bit, especially the way that he draws uh, faces mm-hmm. and eyes in particular. I also, it it also reminds me of Stan Sakai in that. Interesting. In that it works with the balance of blank space and detail. Yeah. Where a lot of the emotionality and atmosphere is balanced by how much detail or patterns he includes in blank spaces. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's relying on reader projection. I think that is certainly uh, happening. But when he does choose to narrow in a focus, like, he's manipulating that projection. Yes, he'll, like, use a large panel to show you a background, and then... When you move to a smaller panel to get into the foreground, he'll just like use a solid color. And so you can just literally fill in the gaps for yourself. The art style also evolves according to location. So for example, our hero goes to a planet that's made entirely of geometric shapes. Mm And so then the art changes around her. But it's still, it's not abrupt. It still stays within the style of the entire piece. Yeah, you know, like, I get to the end of this comic book, I think it is a fully realized, rich story. It's a one and done, you're good. There is a little tease at 
a possible future adventure on the very, very last page. And when I say the very last page, I mean the back cover. And I think that's super cool. I would like to see Jesse Lonergan blow this story up into a proper, like, big, thick, 500-page Jeff Lemire Essex County graphic novel. But if he doesn't, we're still satisfied with this story. Yeah, Yeah. and if you do blow it up into that large of a book, uh, you probably have to shrink the format. And that Ooh. would, you oh, would lose because, that, the size, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, because of how it would feel to, like, I guess you if you had a huge volume of this in this side, you'd have to, like, literally lay on your belly to read it, which yeah, is it, sometimes the best way to read a book. Or it will crack your back like some of those absolute editions will do. Absolute editions are for shelves. Like, paperbacks <laughs> are for reading. Yeah, yeah. What bugs me the most about absolute editions is how much art you lose in the crack of uh-huh. the book. Uh-huh. Like, I think that if you have an absolute edition size to read, it would practically need to be spiral bound so that it can lay flat. Yeah, and I think there's room for publishers to play with spineless graphic novels. I've seen it with novels here and there where you can just lay the book flat where the, the pages are sort of glued together and they miss a spine. There's no hard piece. That is true wizardry. As a person who has had to like use like opera scores and um, piano books, like the book that can lie flat is like true magic. Yeah, Marvel and DC really need to invest some money there. But moving on to our next category, which is best ongoing series. And there were a lot of contenders here. I know we have several listeners who really were pushing for Chip Zdarsky's Daredevil. Guys, I really love Daredevil. I think Lisa's going to really like Daredevil. She has not had a chance to read it yet. That's on the schedule for 2021. Uh, Immortal Hulk, we gave it to it last year. And that, you know, like Immortal Hulk could also have been the best ongoing series this year. Strong contender. Love everything that Al Ewing's doing on that book. But we have to go with our hearts. And our hearts say that the best ongoing series for 2020 was Image Comics Firepower, written by Robert Kirkman, illustrated by Chris Samney, colored by Matt Wilson, and lettered by Russ Wooten. And you can tell that Image knew that they had something extraordinarily special Mm. in the way that they marketed it. Yeah, so it originally came out as a $10 prelude. Then the first issue was a free comic book day issue and is the reason why we don't have a free comic book day category this year because guess what? Firepower number one would be our best free comic book uh, selection. Fire hands down. And then they launched the series into the regular monthly title. And at this point, they've published six issues in total plus the prelude. So yes, there's more content with Daredevil. There's more content with Immortal Hulk. But I just don't think those two books match the consistency of quality that you see in Firepower in this collaboration between Robert Kirkman and Chris Samney. The proof is in how eager we are to get that next issue. Yeah, and I'm dying for issue seven. And I know this is a tired criticism, but the big two companies, because of their schedule, cannot keep one artist consistently on a title. So you're always jumping between, you know, Joe Bennett and some other guy who's going to fill in on Immortal Hulk. What 
Samney and Kirkman did is they gave themselves a massive leeway before the jump. When the Prelude published, they actually had 16 issues worth of art already in the can. And what I love about Image Comics from its very inception is that they understand the importance of art in the storytelling. The artist is the primary storyteller and they don't wanna shake that up. So you have situations like Saga going away for a year plus so that they can keep the team together. And as a fan of these works, I don't mind that weight. Yes, it can be annoying, but when I have the trade at the end of the day and when the story is said and done and you have this singular creation between Samney and Kirkman, that's truly incredible and feels so unique within the culture of comic books currently. I feel like the future of comic books is going to rely on trades. Yes, and for sure. so if we yeah. want to continue to get floppy comics and you know that we do, I think that we have to be a little bit more patient so that um, at the end of the day, the trade feels like a complete work in and of itself. Yeah, I mean, that's easy for us to say. Because we're not in charge. We're not comics. in charge, and we're not in charge of the financials of the model that they currently have. And this is a very old conversation that we're having. And, you know, like you say that if we want to continue to have singles, floppies, then we need to have patience. I don't, I just don't think that's possible. I don't think we're going to be having singles in the way that we've had for the last, uh, I don't know how many years of comics, 80 plus years, 90 plus years of comics. My heart. But we're way off topic. Let's talk about firepower. Why do we love firepower as much as we do? For me, I like that it's a couple comic. It like, is. I'm totally seeing ghosts of comic book couples counseling future. Yeah, I think there's a good chance that Owen and Kelly are going to happen in maybe not 2021, but 2022. Get a few trades under our belt and we've got some good material for the podcast. It's perfect fodder because yeah, there's magic and uh, good guys and bad guys and fighting and, and fire fists and stuff. But at the heart of this comic is like, how do you get work-life balance? <laughs> yeah. And what's great about the reading experience of Firepower and the way that they issued it out with that prelude is the entire time you're reading the trade, you're thinking the comic is one thing. Okay, it is a spin on Marvel's Immortal Iron Fist. And yeah, that's kind of true. But when you get to the end of that prelude, and I don't want to spoil that experience for people who have yet to jump in on Firepower, the book shifts and becomes something totally different. Which is what gets people running to their free comic book day going yeah. like, I need this free issue. Absolutely. And then you read that free issue and then you're hooked for life. I really do think it's an innovative distribution system that they've come up with with Firepower. And I'd like to think we'll see more comics taking this format in the future, dropping like a big trade and then giving you the singles month to month. But I think it's more indicative of trades being the primary delivery system of the future of comics. But there I go again, getting more doom and gloom. You know, I just want to highlight Chris Samney one last time before we move on. His art 
is so kinetic. The way that he sells action, we've seen it in Captain America and Daredevil. But this is Samney at the height of his powers. He was born to draw a kung fu comic. The action scenes in Firepower are the best of the year, without a doubt. I also really do like the colors. Yeah, I mean, yes, Matt Wilson. Holla! <laughs> He's quickly becoming one of my favorite colorists. I'd put him right there alongside Dave Stewart. I cannot believe that you have publicly hollowed on the <laughs> podcast. I'm not afraid to holla. We did not give away a lot of the plot in Firepower because the momentum of this book is entirely in the reveals. Yeah, for sure. So, And we don't want to take that from you guys because we like you. So let's move on to our next category, which is best single issue. Oh man, uh, this this was a tough category to figure out. We, we were sweating bullets all the way down to this final decision. We did the most amount of research around this category. We read so many single issues before we hit record today. And we literally reread this book just to make sure this morning and it still delivers. And that is X-Men Volume 5, Number 7. Written by Jonathan Hickman, illustrated by Lionel Francis Yu, colored by Sunny Go, and lettered by VCs Clayton Cowles. Published by Marvel Comics in February. Yeah, so we picked Hickman last year for the best single issue, and I was like, I don't know if we could pick Hickman twice. Uh, that feels weird to me. But sometimes, you know, you just got to give it to the guy who's knocking it out of the park. Uh, last year, we gave it to House of X number two because the revelations there completely reframed the concept of the X-Men uh, going forward. And that's not what makes X-Men number seven so special. This isn't like a revelatory experience, but it does underscore this extraordinary new world order that's happening on Krakoa with the mutants. And the moral quandary it is creating for the X-Men as individuals. In this issue, we're looking particularly at Scott Summers and Kurt Wagner, who have two very different worldviews, but they both find themselves in this position where they're having to entirely recontextualize and reshuffle their principles. Yeah, so one of the big things that came out of House of X, Powers of Ten, was this idea of resurrection. With the help of the five, which consists of the five mutants, Hope Summers, Egg, Elixir, Proteus, and Tempest, the mutants can now die and come back. And this creates an incredible opportunity for the mutants who were affected by Wanda Maximoff, the Scarlet Witch, during House of M, when she said, no more mutants. And you have a character like Melody Guthrie, who once had the power of flight, but then was cursed to live a human's life because of Wanda. She now can be resurrected, meaning she has to die first. And they have created on Krakoa the ritual of Crucible, where you go into combat, stand as a mutant, even though you're human, get cut down. And when you're cut down, you come back fully reformed in your old body as a mutant. Which gives Scott Summers the squidgies because yeah. he knows that it is wrong to take away a mutant's powers. Like a mutant's powers is so connected to who they are. And having the powers restored is a is therefore a good thing. 
But he's like celebrating death. Like that's weird. In ritual combat with apocalypse. That's that's no good. That can't be okay. I think that this series is really challenging folks like Scott Summers, the old school X-Men fans. What's going on in Krakoa is like, uh, I don't know. Do I like Charles being part of this thing? It's weird. It's weird. It's uncomfortable. And it's meant to be. And then there is Kurt Wagner, oh, who is Catholic. So he believes in a soul. And like the whole purpose of the soul is to be united with Christ in heaven. So if you die and then are restored, where does that soul go? Does it go back into your restored body? Is it ri therefore ripped from heaven? Or does it go to heaven? And then we just have this soulless body walking the earth. What does that mean? So it's creating this whole other set of squidgies for Kurt. Which is a set of squidgies he is already experiencing because he himself is resurrected before Krakoa happens. And Scott has just come back to life too. Characters die all the time in comics. It's lost any kind of meaning narratively. And what Hickman is doing here with resurrection is commenting on that failure of the medium. By giving us resurrection, he's now adding story, not taking away story. I always think about this interview I saw with Ta-Nehisi Coates that he did at, uh, uh, not Politics of Prose, at Phantom Comics in mm -hmm. DC mm -hmm. when he launched Black Panther. And he said, when you kill a character, you remove story. Now, if you cut off that character's arm, you add story. The character is now having to learn how to function without an arm. Every time an artist draws that character, they have to draw that character without an arm. Every time that writer writes that character, they have to write that character without an arm. They have to confront this missing piece. And once upon a time, that was the case for killing a character in comics, the death of Gwen Stacy, the death of Uncle Ben. But when you kill a character like, say, Galactus, as Donny Cates has just done in Thor, immediately I go, well, Galactus is coming back. He's an IP. We need Galactus. When Galactus is going to be in the Fantastic Four movie, we know Marvel's going to pull Galactus back into the land of the living. So when he dies in Cates' Thor run, I lose a little interest. I shrug a little bit because it's not interesting. It's been done. It won't last. The irony is that the main criticism that Hickman's twist on the X-Men gets is that there's no death. There's no stakes. Yeah. What this single issue is saying is, F you, there are stakes. Yeah, big stakes. What we love about these characters is not their mortality. It is their principles, who we think they are at their very core. That's what, when we see a new writer pick up a character, we say, oh, they better not change this about Scott Summers. <laughs> Don't mess it up. But when we take their very mortality away from them, that that's going to mess it up. He's shaking up what we think is essential about these people that we love. What's at stake is not the characters. What's at stake is us and our interest in these characters. Yeah, I mean, that conversation that Kurt is having about the soul and how it tortures him and this idea of like, Am I me, the guy who's walking around who has died and come back? Am I the original Kurt or am I something new? That's that's a concept that has been played around with a little bit here in X-Men, but Hickman is really stretching it out. 
it the comic right now is less about the punchy fighty, although I love Ten of Swords, and I could have picked Ten of Swords uh, Destruction or Creation as one of the best single issues of this year. But for me, it is these ideas, the philosophies that are being stirred and uh, confronted and challenged and messed up, what, what is what's making Hickman's run on X-Men so damn interesting. That question that Kurt is so troubled by is a question that we as a reader should be troubled by. And Hickman is treating these characters as if they are real. What is the logical extrapolation of a Kurt Wagner who no longer believes in the soul. Yeah, and that's something that we do here on this podcast week after week. We take a couple, we take a self-help book, and we marry them, and we try to figure out what's going on inside these people. We treat these characters as people, and I always love it when an artist or a writer takes them with that sincerity. If Kurt Wagner truly believes in the soul. How can he endorse mutant resurrection? Yeah, awesome, awesome. I also want to say X-Men number seven gives me two other things. One is Melody Guthrie, a character I knew nothing about really before this issue. And seeing her stand against Apocalypse, like when she comes up and there's that one panel that Lionel Francis Yu draws where she's got her fists up and her eyes bloody and black, like, you're like, this character is interesting. I, I, I want to know more about her. She is a badass. Also, the conversation early on between Cyclops and Wolverine. Yes, yes, yes. And how it sort of stokes the fires of R. Scott, Gene, and Logan. Are they a thruple? What's going on? I love all of that stuff. I'm on Team Thruple. Same. I like to see Jean Grey eating her cake and having it too. And Logan is totally the cake. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yum, yum. All right. Moving on to our second to last category, best collected comic slash miniseries. We've got another repeat from last year. We gave it to Daniel Warren Johnson and Mike Spicer for Murder Falcon, which remains one of my favorite comics of not just last year, but of the decade probably. And guess what? Wonder Woman, Dead Earth, their collaboration once again just destroyed me. I cherish this comic. Originally published in a magazine format, Black Label, loving what they're doing, from December of 2019 to October of this year. The hardcover came out almost exactly one year after the first issue was published, and it is a beaut. I think we are learning a lot about ourselves and our tastes sure. in creating this list because Wonder Woman Dead Earth is another logical extrapolation comic where we go, mm. okay, Wonder Woman's gauntlets are restraining her powers and we've come to understand that Wonder Woman's ideology is built around this love of humanity, which is both noble and naive. Yeah. So what happens if we take away her gauntlets and she has to face her ultimate disappointment yes. in humanity? Because we know us, we suck. Yeah, we're always going to disappoint our heroes, right? And so what this comic is about is how we deeply disappointed her and the rage that that produced and then the ability to forgive, her ability to forgive us and our ability to forgive her. 
And again, I don't want to spoil too much about the details of that forgiveness and that disappointment. So if you have not read Wonder Woman Dead Earth, please do so now, because I just don't want to ruin that experience at all. The comic on the surface is metal as hell, just like Murder Falcon, right? But also just like Murder Falcon, beneath that metal as hell aesthetic is a emotional core that is so resonant and powerful and timely and gut-wrenching and hopeful. But yeah, in a year that also produced death metal from Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo, Wonder Woman Dead Earth uh, way out metals death metal. <laughs> like this is the most metal comic of the year. And it's also one of the most emotionally satisfying comics of the year. There's one moment in particular that I would love to point to as like the perfect example, but I don't want to spoil no, it. No, don't spoil it. Don't spoil it. I know which one you're talking about though. Daniel Warren Johnson's art is like the perfect manifestation of the contradictions in the plot because it is both ugly and beautiful. Mm. Like if you zoom in on one panel of Wonder Woman's face, you're kind of like, Ugh. but then you'll turn the page and you'll take in a splash page as a whole and it is gorgeous. I mean, we have to talk about Wonder Woman's appearance in this, her physicality, her physique. Like she does not look like any other representation of Wonder Woman that we've seen in DC Comics. She is a true Amazon and we see the weight of her history in her face. Like, she's hard. She's hard. She is hard, but she is also sorrowful, right? There's so much sorrow in her expressions throughout this book. And like, I just think it's something that uh, Daniel Warren Johnson is a master of. He can be badass and just squishy. Mm. I do think this book will certainly rub certain fans the wrong way. I think if you adore Clark Kent and Superman, you might go like, this is not how it would play out for for this guy. For We th cannot give this comic to Darren, for no, example. No, we can't give it to Darren. And I also think like uh, Batman fans might have some issues with it. Um, but I think that where Batman is found at the beginning of this comic and also the end of this comic is the most Batman thing. But what makes this take on the heroes our jam is we have a tendency to fixate on our heroes' broken parts. <laughs> yeah. Because that's where we relate to them. We relate to them through their failure. Yeah, and as a um, Elseworlds-type tale, sort of like Usagi Ojimbo Senso, which we just covered, uh, you this is an imaginary uh, idea of what their future might be. You can read this and go like, well, no, this is not how it's going to go for Wonder Woman. Or you can go, yeah, this is a 1,000% how it's going to go for Wonder Woman if her perspective on humanity never changes. Yeah, but also, like, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. You gotta take this story on its own face value. If you just look at Dead Earth as having a beginning and an end and you take it out of continuity, which is what a lot of the Black Label comics are doing, this is a whole piece and it works just as is. You can enjoy Dead Earth and you can enjoy all the other Wonder Woman stories out there. But that just caters to our particular comics philosophy of like, we're always building our own canon. Yeah, but I also think that comic book fans as a whole have been trained to react that way. I mean, this is how you react to The Dark Knight Returns. This is how you react to Superman Red Sun. You just experience that as a theoretical thing and you enjoy it. 
and then you either toss it aside or it becomes part of your heart cannon. And for me, Dead Earth is going to be one of the premier Wonder Woman comics. I think it's one of the best ones I've read so far in my experience with the character. And I think it has helped define or redefine my idea of Diana. And it doesn't require any kind of deep Wonder Woman knowledge. No. Like it completely hinges on the fact that like Diana chose to be a hero for humanity through her meeting and love of Steve Trevor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's clear to me that Daniel Warren Johnson did not do a lot of deep research into all the versions of Diana, of Wonder Woman across DC continuity. He takes his idea, his very basic idea, which is an idea that you probably could see and extrapolate from the DCEU or the Linda Carter series, and he builds from that. Yeah, Steve Trevor, Truth Lasso, that's all you need to know. Paradise Island, you're yeah. done, you're good. There isn't even a flying, like, invisible ship. No, no ship, no ship, spoilers, no ship. But there is a Pegasus. Oh, yeah! But word of warning, this is an apocalypse story. Bad things happen to that Pegasus. Mm, it's metal AF, though. So. It sure is, it sure is. All right, Lisa, it's time to wrap this up with the last category, Best Original Graphic Novel. I think... Next to single issue, this was not necessarily the hardest choice for us to make, but one where we had many options, right? We could have gone with Dracula, Mother Effer uh, by Alex DeCampi and Erica Henderson. We could have gone with uh, two Sean Phillips and Ed Brubaker comics. We could have gone with Pulp or we could have gone with Reckless, which just dropped this week and is excellent. But no, for us, there was only one choice, and it was an easy choice because when we read it, we were deeply, madly, truly in love. Okay, folks, you can stop shouting it at your podcast playing machine because the answer is Jack Kirby, The Epic Life of the King of Comics by special guest and friend of the pod, <laughs> Tom Scioli, published in July of this year. Do you think Tom Shelley ever thinks of us? I can promise you, Lisa, that he does not. Aww. Certainly not as much as we think of him. Tom Shelley has had an incredible 2020, right? Uh, in January, he published Fantastic Four Grand Design, and he followed that up with Jack Kirby, The Epic Life of the King of Comics, the comic he was born to put down to paper. Like, this is everything you've ever wanted Tom Scioli to do in his career. And he's also launched a really butt-kicking Patreon. And if you have not signed up to his Patreon, I highly recommend it. His Young Zeus comics that he's been putting out there are crazy cool. I need those collected and bound immediately. I need them in my hand. And so Tom Scioli, bravo. It stinks that 2020 robbed him of his con season because I think he would have been one of those go-to tables at every con this year. We could have gotten our high five in. Yeah, we're not going to get a high five in anytime soon, I'm afraid. But he was a super cool dude, very, very friendly on uh, the podcast. I encourage you all to go back and listen to that Creator Corner interview if you did not. Uh, it's clear to me that this is his passion project. Once he put this out in the world, like this massive, not weight, but hurdle. Like he mm. leapt this hurdle. He finally got to tell Jack Kirby's tale. He finally got to celebrate the man that he adored so much in his life. And where does Tom Scioli go from here? I'm not sure, but I'm super excited to find out. Tom Scioli's influence and style has been um, 
kind of backwards looking. His lineage mm. artistically to Jack Kirby has been so strong. Yes. So this book feels like an acknowledgement of, yes, I feel like a culmination of everything that Jack Kirby has created. So now Tom Scioli has done his backwards looking thing so he can finally do whatever his next forward looking thing is. Yeah, and I also think that Jack Kirby, the epic life of the King of Comics came out at the perfect time. Mm -hmm. I think that the world is ready to understand the impact that Kirby had on the culture. And I think that Stanley needed to die for us to really pay attention because Stanley cast such a huge shadow over Marvel and, you know, in, in his way did um, a great disservice to Jack Kirby and pushed him out of the conversation. And because Stanley was in cameo after cameo in Marvel movies, the mainstream audience thinks that Stanley is the father of Marvel comics. But now we can really go, look, yes, acknowledge that it was a combination of Stan and Jack. And maybe Jack owns a larger portion of everything you love than Stanley. What Shioli has constructed here is this textbook, a very entertaining and gorgeous to look at textbook, but it's a textbook about how Marvel came to be and how once established, it had no interest in Jack Kirby and could easily cast him aside. And what does an artist do after they've built something so significant? And then they have to just keep on doing what they know. Like, where do they go next? They go to DC Comics and they try to create the fourth world. And then what do they find at DC Comics? The same walls that he saw at Marvel. And so he goes back to Marvel. And it's this epic tale of an individual striving to do what's in their heart, what they were born to do, and being denied in so many arenas. Jack Kirby kept repeatedly finding himself being treated like a cog in the machine. And he kept on like fighting, like going like, guess what guys, I am the machine. Yeah, and so what you get here at the end of the day is a celebration of this man who gave us all these things, giving him the spotlight he truly deserves. And the result is both a tragedy and a triumph. All of us Marvel fan children have been riding high on all of these recent Marvel announcements yeah. by Feige and Disney. So many movies, so many shows. And what this book reminds us is that the religion that is the Marvel universe is built on the backs of martyrs like Jack Kirby. And same with DC, like Bill Finger yeah. was also a martyr. Yeah, go watch Batman and Bill, another excellent comic book documentary. I wish that there was a way for us to go back mm. and appreciate these people in their time. Yes, but we can appreciate those in our time now. There are people fighting the good fight like Jack Kirby within this industry today. There are still, well, they're becoming fewer and fewer, but there are still contemporaries of Jack Kirby who were 
treated like cogs. People like Ramona Freyden. Yeah, and she is of still doing commissions. You can reach out. You can find her online and order yourself a commission. Give her some love. There are also the trailblazing women of the Marvel bullpen, like Louise Simonson and Anne Nocenti. Heck yeah. Because of what we've learned about Jack Kirby and from Jack Kirby, we are now way more cognizant of the team of people behind each of our single issues. Yeah, and creators have learned to take control of their creations. Look at what Stan Sakai does with Usagi Yojimbo. Look at Image Comics itself. Look at Robert Kirkman. Like these are people that saw what went down with Jack Kirby, learned the hard lessons, and they're fighting the good fight in his name in a lot of ways. The story that Tom Chioli tells in the pages of the epic life of the King of Comics is one that is information dense, like an encyclopedia, but it is all laid out in a very strong and compelling thesis statement. And it's gorgeous. Like, you know, Tom Scioli is having a lot of fun with the characters in this book. I mean, his design of Kirby himself with those big blue eyes, you know, he's very cartoony-like. I, I think it was, a, that's an ingenious move. And adds this level of energy to the story that would be missing if you went for a more realistic approach to the facial features of Jack Kirby. Because Jack Kirby is both the historical figure and the metaphor. Yes. This is not an autobiography. It is a biography. It is a bunch of stories that Shioli has cobbled together to make sense as one piece. He didn't interview Kirby. He's creating a myth here. He's making Kirby as mythic as the characters Kirby made. Kirby's penchant for world creating was like a superpower and like... The Silver Surfer, those superpowers do come at a price. You said something interesting off mic when we were talking about this book, uh, that it is like a history that we will return to over and over. It's a text that we will reread when we want to dip back into the well of Kirby and uh, or the well of Marvel. Like when you want to appreciate Marvel comics, like after you've watched an MCU movie, after you've watched Avengers Endgame, following it up with Jack Kirby, The Epic Life of King of Comics only feels right. Yeah, it's like a favorite Christmas movie. It like renews the spirit of comics. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good place to end this episode. What do you think, Lisa? Do you think all our listeners will be happy with our choices? Of course not. Of course not. I know comic book fans. They're going to have oversight discrepancies. I don't know. Like I have certainly been perusing various best of lists and several of the titles that we've highlighted on this episode do appear on a lot of those lists. I think we have some unique, very Brad and Lisa picks here as well, but I don't think there's anything offensive. The Daredevil guys, I'm sorry. <laughs> we see you and love you and recognize that that comic is great but it's just not firepower to us. <laughs> the Gullickson Heart wants what the Gullickson Heart wants. And we've already established this is not a best of, like, definitive. Yeah, this is favorites. The faves, our personal faves. But we do always want to keep the conversation going. Yeah, so hit us up with what you would pick in these categories. I want to hear your favorite single issue. I want to hear your favorite fan comic. 
especially fan comics. I love fan comics. We're hungry for Rex at Uh, all times. All times, all times. And I am looking forward to 2021. There's some good stuff out there on the horizon. A Daniel Warren Johnson Beta Ray Bill solo comic? I'm here for it. My mind is melting. One of my all-time favorite characters matched with one of my all-time favorite creators. And I like to think that we had some part or, or some connection to the marrying of Daniel Warren Johnson and Beta Ray Bill. Like the secret? Like we put that out into the world? Well, if you remember, if you go back and listen to our interview with Eric and Steven over at Four Color Fantasies, they were putting together that charity auction to benefit the Winchester Literary Society, and they got Daniel Warren Johnson to do a sketch cover. And what did Daniel Warren Johnson do on that sketch cover? This gorgeous, widescreen presentation of Beta Ray Bill. That's right. Oh, so uh, he was already thinking of us. It's the power of attraction. I mean, it's science now. He was probably already in the process of making this Beta Ray Bill comic. But then he listened to our podcast, (laughs) heard how excited we were. And he's like, I think I'm going to I'm going to make this a thing. That's what I'm pretending to believe. (laughs) Um, Okay, so, uh, oh, oh, and then we got DC Future State. I'm excited about that in the next few months. And over at Fanagraphics, Barry Windsor Smith's Monsters is finally being published after 35 years. Lots of good comics on the horizon. There are lots of reasons to be super optimistic for 2021. And I'm incredibly excited for our next slate of couples that we'll be covering that year. We've got some big couples we haven't touched yet, right? Lois and Clark. Reed and Sue. Yeah, we're going to be touching some couples. Touching some couples. And I think we're due for a return to the X-Men. Yeah, that's how we always start our year. We call it X-Men Annuary. Yeah. We don't call it that. But in January, <laughs> we, should. we generally do it. We should, couple. yeah, because the podcast launched with Scott Summers and Jean Grey. That's right. And then last year or this year launched with Remy and Rogue. And that's still our most popular episode of 2020, that first Rogue and Remy episode. Oh, we were so young then. What we didn't know. Yeah, I wish we could go back there. No, no, I don't wish we'd go back. We're going forward. 2021 is going to be such a better year than 2020. I am confident in that. Yes, in comic books, in podcasting, in all things. Yeah. So, Brad, is this our last episode of 2020? No, we've got one more coming down the pike. I do think we are going to jump into an X-Men couple. We have not decided yet what the first X-Men couple of 2021 will be. Don't don't be shy. Tell, give us your suggesties. Yeah, if you've learned anything this episode, we want Rex from you guys. So give us the X-Couple you want to see us cover next. But for our final episode of 2020... We are going to go back to the world of sex criminals, Chip Zdarsky and Matt Fraction. They finished up their series this year, and it's time for us to conclude our podcast series from 2019. So next week's episode, sorry, not next week's episode, because we're going to have a little Christmas break, but the week after that, the final week of December is going to be devoted to sex criminals issues 26 through 30 and issue 69. Up top. Up top. 69, 69, dudes. Love those guys. Of course, sex criminals ends on issue 69. I wonder how many relationships end with a 69. I'm guessing like not 
you're you're never gonna open with a 69. <laughs> like if I you, think 69 is like a level you achieve. It's like a boss level. I think it's <laughs> no, I think it's something that you move through. You go like, hey, look, I'm fun and adventurous. <laughs> and Let, no more of that. Let's we've done that. Now that is checked off. We're checking boxes. Let's oh try my some gosh. other checking things. boxes. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Lisa, 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 Lisa. We gotta get out of here. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you this week? That is so sweet. I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art, send them over to at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Brad, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? Yeah, you can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and iTunes. If you'd like to get exclusive, you can join our Patreon where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. And that means if you want to hear our voices next week, guess what? Lisa and I? have a screener to see Wonder Woman 1984. Squee! And we are going to do a review of that. We're going to put that in our Patreon channel. We're going to make that free for all. But while you're hanging out, listening to our review of Wonder Woman 1984, why not consider, for just a dollar, joining the community? If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CBCC Podcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on iTunes, also known as Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? It honestly helps us gain more traction. We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Lisa, do you have a song for us? Can you send us out on a song? No? You got nothing? I can do something. Give me give me a second. Oh Wolverine, oh Wolverine, how shiny are your claws? Oh Wolverine, oh Wolverine. How shiny are your claws? You clearly are Canadian. With Jean and Scott, you're more than friends. Oh, Wolverine, oh, Wolverine. How lovely are your claws? God bless us, everyone. Merry Xmas, everybody.